Well, a few months ago when I was preaching, I had to begin by explaining, and I'll do it again. I have my phone with me here, not because I take calls during my homily, but I record myself, and so that way I know that I'm not going too long, okay? Today we've got a very rich set of scriptures, and uh, they're very, very profound, very deep. You know, I've been reading the Bible very seriously since I was 18, and I'm 45 now, so how many years is that? What, 20, 27 years, right? And uh, it always, uh, one of the many conundrums that I had in my mind and questions as I would read the Bible, as I would read the Gospels, is when Jesus talks about the end of the world, he's speaking at the same time about the destruction of the temple in that took place only a few years after his death and resurrection. Okay, So in 70 AD, so our Lord was crucified and rose from the dead probably around 30 or so. And then the destruction of the temple took place about 40 years after that, around 70 or so. And I was always wondering, like, it seems like he's talking about the end of the world, but he's really, he's kind of talking about that, the destruction of the temple in that first Jewish war. And what, what is going on with this almost like conflation of the end of the world and the destruction of the temple? It always kind of confused me. I thought about that for a long time. It was, it was a, it was just one of many puzzles that the Bible gave to me. And then as I continued to study and read and I got some formal training under my belt and whatnot, I began to realize that for the Jewish people, and you can see this in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3, right in the, right in the beginning of the Bible, there's a very deep connection between the world and the Jewish temple. And in fact, in Genesis 1, you kind of got to get into it, it'd be too much, to, too much detail to get into, but in the very first chapter of the Bible, the creation story has as its backdrop the whole idea of the temple and the world as a temple, that God created the world as a place for worship, for worship. And also then in chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis, the Garden of Eden is also portrayed as a temple, as a kind of a primeval temple. And then later on in Exodus, when the Jewish uh, tabernacle, which is the forerunner of the temple, is created, there's all of these allusions and connections to cosmic imagery in the world. So, for example, on the the screen that separates the holy place from the holiest of holies, there's all of these stars and astral imagery, meaning that when you go into the holiest of holies, it's like you're passing through heaven. Okay, so there's all of this connection between the world and the temple. And so when Jesus is speaking about the end of the world, it's very appropriate for him to talk about the end of the temple. You see, the temple was everything to the Jewish people. It was the universe. It was the world. It's what everything depended upon. Their whole livelihood, their life, their, the way that they connected to God, the meaning and the purpose, and it all came down to the temple. And so the end of the temple was, as it were, the end of the world. But as I said in my beginning, here in my little introduction, it's a sad and tragic thing, but you know what? It's a beautiful thing as well. Because the very next chapter of the Gospel of Luke, where we have our Gospel today, you, open, you turn the page and you get the Holy Eucharist. The Holy Eucharist. 
the Last Supper, but it's the first Mass. And so the implication is that the sacrificial system of the animals in the temple was just a symbol that pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that would be represented and and perpetuated across history in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. So Jesus came to take away the symbolic imagery of the Old Testament and to give us the reality. And that's a very humbling thing to realize that. For eons and eons of time, God was shaping this sacrificial system with all of these animals, okay, all of these, all this bloodshed that took place. It's an immense amount of bloodshed, right? There's animal blood, but it was an immense amount. And all of that was for the purpose of letting us know the importance of Jesus' sacrifice on the Mass that is now perpetrated, or perpetuated, I'm sorry, perpetuated through the celebration of Holy Eucharist. You know, the Council of Trent, this is something very interesting. I mentioned about all the blood, okay? You know, all this blood. In the first chapter of Genesis, it implies that human beings, they didn't eat meat, that there wasn't killing of animals for the first human beings, that there was kind of like Adam and Eve were vegetarians. That's what it implies. It's very interesting. But then as soon as Adam and Eve sin, they were covering themselves up with plant leaves, right, with fig leaves. But God gives them animal skins to cover themselves up with. Okay? Implication being that sacrifice was established because of sin. All right? But now in the Holy Eucharist, the, Tr- the Council of Trent refers to it as, as, it, as the unbloody, unbloody sacrifice of the Mass. And so all the violence and the bloodshed that was ushered into the world through sin and through injustice, what's the first sin recorded in the Bible after Adam and Eve sinned? Is Cain killing his brother Abel, right? And then it's just a whole torrent of bloodshed from there on out. But the holy sacrifice of the Mass is a whole new world wherein justice and peace reign and bloodshed, human bloodshed, comes to an end. And we're not killing each other anymore, we're not murdering each other anymore, but rather it's a vegetarian meal, so to speak, okay? Because it's wheat and it's, it's wine, And it's offered up. Of course, there's the sacrifice of Jesus that's truly present. But you know what? He's present now as risen from the dead, as overcoming sin, as having conquered death. He is alive and he is present to us in the Eucharist. And when we receive him in Holy Eucharist, we are bringing into our very bodies, as it were, the seed of immortality, the power by which we one day will be raised from the dead, the power by which one day our very bodies will be brought back from death. Just like Jesus' body was brought back from death. Now another thing, talk, I want to talk a little bit about this whole idea of justice and righteousness. You know, today uh, in our psalm, what do we sing about the earth? God is going to come and he's going to bring justice to the earth, right? We sung about that. 
And then in our second reading from St. Paul, St. Paul is speaking about kind of like how to organize the, the community, okay? And, you know, it's extremely um, focused on social justice, okay? And uh, to each according to their need from each according to their ability. Now, that's like a Marxist slogan, okay? So uh, St. Paul is not a Marxist, but Marx wasn't, It's you know, it's hard to be 100% wrong, Right? It's hard to be 100% wrong about things, okay? So Marx was like 98% wrong, but that one slogan of his really is fulfilled within Christianity. It's each from their ability to each according to their needs. And you see how Paul is doing that. And how Paul, he had the right not to work, actually, but he didn't take advantage of that right because he wanted to be a model to everybody else to show how much hard work so as to support other people was important. So that kind of justice... That's the new world that Jesus and the Eucharist bring into being. What an awesome world is that. You know, unfortunately, brothers and sisters, the temple had become a place of corruption, okay, in Jesus' day. By the time Jesus' day came around, it had become a place of corruption, unfortunately. So right before Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, and right before he replaces the temple with the Eucharist, if you turn to the chapter back... He's cleansing the temple of the money changers. Okay, so there's a whole story of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and he goes right into the temple, and he takes a cord of uh, a whip of a cord of whips, and he starts hitting people and chasing them out of the temple, and he's turning over the tables of the money changers. Okay, because they had turned his father's house into a den of robbers, he says. You know. The temple, unfortunately, was ruled over by an oligarchy of the, the Sadducees, and they had a stranglehold on everybody's pocketbook. Okay, And they were just kind of the middlemen between all the, the average, everyday Jewish people who lived in Palestine and the Romans. Okay, So the Romans basically gave a few elite people uh, amongst the Jews to say, however you get that money, and however you get those taxes, just get them, okay? So they gave them a blank check, essentially, to do whatever they wanted. And there was a lot of injustice going on. So, for example, there's a story um, about how a rabbi had to reduce the price. See, so this was the deal. When you traveled to Jerusalem, it was, it was not feasible for you to bring your own animal there to sacrifice in the temple. It just wasn't feasible. It was too long of a journey. Okay. So they had animals for sale at the temple. You see, so you'd bring money, you'd pay for an animal, and that's what you'd use for the sacrifice. Well, guess what the prices of these these animals were, right? And doves in particular were the sacrifice of the poor because they were the cheapest animal. Well, there's a story about a rabbi who had to reduce by force, he had to reduce the price of doves by 99%. Talk about serious inflation going on here, right? Okay, And then, you know, I was talking about how the Jewish temple was overthrown in 70 A.D. When that took place, there were some Jewish rebels that basically kind of stormed it and took control of it. You know what the first things they did? They burnt everybody's record of debt because all the debt records were kept in the temple and the debts were ultimately the result of injustice, Okay, of people taking hoarding to themselves more than their fair share and extracting all the produce 
from the poor farmers of the land. Okay, And so all the Roman taxes were stored up in the temple. They had taken a place that was holy and was meant to point to our Lord Jesus Christ, and they had turned it into a place of corruption. Okay, Because that's the human story, unfortunately. But Jesus comes, and he gives us a whole new world. No more, what's the two constants we always talk about? The things that are totally certain? Death and taxes? Okay. Okay, so those are the two things that Jesus came to take care of. Alright? He came to, to establish victory over death. And victory over the injustice that we can perpetrate towards one another. And to bring an end to violence. My brothers and sisters, this is the new world. The new world of the Holy Eucharist. That's what we celebrate today. May it change us, transform us, so that we have that hope and that confidence that death does not have the last word, but that the risen Christ has the last word. That injustice and violence does not have the last word, but equity and the generosity that we have and the love and the concern that we have for one another to work hard to take care of each other. And, and to be people of peace and not violence. That's, that's the new world that the Eucharist brings into existence. Thanks be to God.